Back in the fur shed, I am Jeremiah Wood. This is the Trapping Today podcast, and it's brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. That's Cots with two A's, K-A-A-T-Z, B-R-O-S.com. My wife calls them the brothers because uh, she hears me in the podcast mentioning the Cots Brothers, and, and uh, she's always asking, what are the brothers doing? How are the brothers uh, making out? And I'll tell you what, the brothers are busy. The brothers have a lot of work. Um, even in a down fur market, they are selling product, shipping stuff out, moving things. Um, they're apparently doing it right. And, uh, you know, someone that can can continue to succeed in an industry like this and as, as tough at times as we're going through in the fur market, uh, that says a lot. And thank you guys that are supporting Cots Brothers. Um, it, you know, them sponsoring the podcast is is really a great thing. It, I appreciate it, and I appreciate you guys placing orders and becoming customers. And you know, you, you, you are—they're um, going to take good care of you. They—they they really will. Believe it or not, there's actually some suppliers in the trapping industry that are not that great. And I was kind of surprised because I always, you know, tend to think the best of people, and and I just assume that they're, you know. Most everybody in the trapping world is honest, you know, upstanding people that treat you good. Until recently, um, when, you know, there's been some discussion around Trapper Man about some trapping supply dealer slash lure maker who's really kind of screwed some people out of money. And I don't know all the details of the story, so I don't want to get into it. I'm not going to mention the individual involved, but... It just gets you thinking that you know nothing's guaranteed, and uh, there are people out there that potentially could take your money and and not send you product. Um, there are people who might send you inferior product. I, I have had cases where there's been things uh, that I've ordered I haven't been too happy with. So um, I'm I'm happy to say that Cots Brothers are are dependable, reliable, and and you will not have those issues with them. I I have developed a, quite a bit of trust in those guys over the years, and uh, and I'm I'm really excited to promote them. And you know, really the top the top tier of the trapping supply industry is is really a safe bet. There are a lot of professionals, and they do a great job. So anyway, uh, thanks Cots Bros for sponsoring the podcast. So we got a lot to talk about tonight. We're going to talk primarily about the fur market and the fur auction results and fur prices. Uh, the NAFA auction is kind of uh, reaching its nearing its end as I record this. Actually, I, when I started recording this, the Bobcats were still selling, and they're just they're actually finished right now. I'm kind of watching the screen on my phone here. So uh, I've got a lot to talk about there, but I'm going to tease that because I want you to stick around. I know a lot of people want to hear about fur prices and, and auction results, and we will get into that. But we've got a few other things to, to get into before that. So first, let's talk emails. I got one from, I, I think it's Travis up in Alaska. I'm sorry if I get your name wrong. I, I didn't pull up the email. Uh, he was looking for some uh, long-distance call lure. And I actually have zero in stock. I I shut that all down on the on the eBay and on my website because basically, guys, um, skunk essence is up to thirty dollars an ounce, and it's very hard. It's getting very very hard to find. Um, 
it's going to be difficult to economically make lure unless the prices go up or the price of ingredients goes down. Beaver caster, same way. So I kind of decided I wasn't going to make any lure for the rest of the, the year because we are nearing, we're kind of the end of most trapping for most parts of the country. So I saved a few bottles to use myself for next year and for various testing things that I, I probably will do here in the next couple months. But I had, you know, I had a few bottles. I didn't want to put any for sale. So he asked uh, if there were any available. Um, I, I found one, I dug one out and I did put that up on the site. So uh, if I did send you an email, man, if you get that, uh, go ahead and buy that. If not, someone else on here might, might buy it. And uh, before, before it's all out, but anyway, I, I may, I'll probably get back to making some lure next fall. I have to make some for myself to make sure I don't run out. So I may make a few extra bottles and put it up for sale. Um, but, um, you know, it's not, I don't know, it's not a huge uh, money maker to to be honest with you. So um, I, I like doing it. It's a really good lure. So for a few people that like to use it, I'll keep making it for for you guys. And, uh, and I appreciate you using that stuff had an email from David uh, talking about just kind of general stuff. He found the website and uh, was looking looking everything up, not really up with technology, but he was kind of excited uh, about the kind of the community that we can build here trapping today. And um, I would echo David's sentiments about, you know, trying to collect a group of people kind of with a similar understanding in trapping and educating others who don't understand quite so much about what we do and why we do it in sort of a unified consistent manner so Dave thanks so much for that email I appreciate it um, let's see I got another email oh I got this email from Mark in in Ontario Mark Crocker is his name this guy is pretty cool so Mark is a listener to the podcast He's from Ontario, and he just had he made the news here. He got a little bit of 15 minutes of fame on CBC News. He sent me this article that says, Perry Sound Ventriloquist spends more time trapping than talking. <laughs> so I'm going to just kind of run through this article with you. I think it's really cool. Mark Crocker is a ventriloquist who works as a trapper in his spare time. When people discover that Canadian ventriloquist Mark Crocker works as a trapper in his spare time, they often ask if he ever throws his voice into a skin beaver or fox pelt. Crocker chuckles and simply says no. The two careers are completely separate. Ventriloquism came first. Born and raised in Hamilton, I'm guessing that's Ontario, Crocker acquired his first ventriloquism dummy in 1977 from his late uncle who had used the puppet to entertain in local bars. As a teenager, Crocker would sit on his front porch talking to his new friend Chester, entertaining school children as they walked by. Word got out and soon Crocker was being paid as ventriloquist for the local Cub Scouts and area churches. It reached a point that I was working with strippers on Friday night and doing a library on Saturday morning, he said. I was soup to nuts on this, but it was never my intent to be a job. Crocker found what he calls real jobs in sales and the printing business, and even for a time as a police officer. But his employment in the real world never panned out. Twenty years later, after being downsized, restructured, laid off, bankrupt, born again, 
I went, okay, let's give this hobby a go. And ventriloquism is now the longest job I've had. In 2000, Crocker launched his full-time ventriloquism career, entertaining on cruise ships, the Comedy Network, and at private engagements. Discovering a second career. Because he travels for work and isn't tied to any one venue, Crocker relocated his family to a lakefront property near Perry Sound in northern Ontario. It's there he discovered a second career, from a neighbor who was a trapper. I thought that went out with the Hudson's Bay Company, said Crocker, who asked his neighbor to show him the ways of trapping. Before long, Crocker took the 40-hour course to be licensed on his own trap line around his property. His quota is 60 beaver each year, along with coyotes, Fisher, and Martin. Trapping is my day job, Crocker jokes. Ventriloquism is my night job. This is not how I saw my life. It's the night job that pays. The entertainment business paid for Crocker's home and put his two children through university. Crocker says with such low prices for fur, he's just happy if he's able to break even with his trapping. But that's not why he does it. He calls trapping a cool activity. You're outside, he said. You've got a skill. It's quiet, and I'm doing my thing. Even Crocker admits his two things, ventriloquism and trapping, are unusual. This is not how I saw my life. I was a suit and tie guy. And that's the end of the article, but it's pretty cool. You know, there's a lot of different people in the trapping world, and uh, we come from so many different backgrounds, and, and kind of that juxtaposition of all these different things going on in our world is pretty cool. So thanks very much, Mark, for, for sending that along. I really appreciate that, and, and it's great to see. Um, got another email from a uh, from a local guy that that I know quite well. I'll hopefully, talk to you about him in the future. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about a couple of emails about the uh, Martin and Fisher pelts that I discussed. So in last uh, probably two episodes ago, I talked about um, if you guys were interested in a tanned pelts, Martin or Fisher from my trap line from this fall, I was going to get some tanned. So I, I just kind of threw that out there to gauge whether there'd be any interest. And I had a couple guys email me uh, interested in both Martin and Fisher pelts. So uh, that was great to hear. Now we'll go into the fur prices here in a little bit. But based on these prices, I actually held back a bunch of fur. to I hadn't decided whether I wanted to ship it or not. And based on what I saw at the first NAFA auction... I'm probably going to send most of this to get tanned, if not all of it. So uh, that being said, uh, the prices that that I'm going to get for these, uh, if you want a tanned Martin pelt for my trap line, it's going to be about $75, and a Fisher is going to be 100 And that's actually cheaper. I actually went to a, a trading post here on Friday and uh, looked at some a couple of tan pelts there. They had a fisher. I think they won $150. And all of my fishers, all six of my fishers are nicer than the one that was hanging there. So uh, for for whatever that's worth, uh, there's there's a few that are sold already, but I really would love for you guys to get in on that. So let me know. And uh, I basically what I'm going to do, I'm not, I'm not even going to ask for payment right now. If you're interested, let me know, and I will set one aside for you. I will send it out to get tanned, and when I get the bill from the tannery, I will send you a bill for the total, and then uh, we can we can take care of it then. So it's probably going to be a couple months from now. 
but let me know because I, I basically what I'm going to do is kind of I'm going to have you I'm going to have you written down for for a pelt and and I'll have a pelt in mind for you. Um if I have 5 6 guys, well I have 5 fishers. So if I have you know 5 people interested, then that's that's going to be that. Um and and I'm going to, you know, whatever the first guys that contact me are are going to kind of get my pick as of the better pelts. So uh, Go ahead and, and get in touch with me on that if you are interested. My email address is jrodwood at gmail.com, J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. Uh, Greg in Vermont, thanks so much for contacting me. I appreciate that. He actually hunts up my way. And then Jeff down in Louisiana, that that uh, all big email, long email from Jeff talking about trapping uh, he just got into trapping this year in a serious way. Done it for a long time, but just really got going on it more this year. Caught the addiction. It's been wet, rainy down there. It's been really tough conditions, and he's running a line. He is uh, uh, doing really well for coyotes, and he sent me a couple pictures of coyotes he caught in the rain. Uh, getting ready to pull pull the traps. Also does some gator trapping, like those guys swamp on Swamp Men TV show, or Swamp People. So that was that was really awesome uh, to get that email from you, Jeff, and and thanks so much. I appreciate it. Um, all right, the Stan Project. Let's talk about the Stan Project. So this is something, this is something that's really important to me. There is so much nowadays on TV what I would consider complete garbage. There's just so much meaningless, time-sucking junk, brain-numbing garbage on television nowadays. And it's just, it, to me, there's it's just not worth watching. And so last fall, you know, after years and years of having, having satellite television, uh, my wife and I cut the cord. We We canceled our satellite TV, um, we have no cable. We live in an area where you cannot get cable, and uh, we we just shut it off. It's done, and and I was sick of it. It's a waste of time, in my opinion, the majority of it. But there were several uh, television shows that were the exception to that, and and it was really exciting because for the last few years there have been a few shows that have have really surfaced as you know meaningful. Uh, shows that are kind of worth your time to to sit down and watch. Uh, those include the The Last Alaskans, Yukon Men, Life Below Zero, uh, Great Wild North. These are shows that are kind of reality TV shows that document the lives of people. Um, Mountain Men was another one. But they document the lives of of real people in in real environment, and uh, fortunately for a guy like me, they were all trappers for the most part. There are a lot a lot of a lot of these reality shows on trapping have kind of become quite popular. So it's been really exciting to watch. And what we did is basically, you know, we we cut the the satellite, and we just bought seasons of these shows to continue to watch. So, you know, I watched. Uh, I might watch one or two TV show episodes in a week, if that. And it, it's going to be something that I want to watch. I watch it because I enjoy it. 
So one of those shows was a show called Yukon Men. And Yukon Men, if you haven't heard of it, it aired on the Discovery Channel. And it was a popular show that documented the lives of people in the tiny village of Tanana, Alaska. Off-road, out in the middle of nowhere. A village of about 200 people that live off the land. It really legit survivors, um, outdoors folk, and, and wilderness dwellers. So there's a guy in Yukon Men that I've talked about before on this podcast named Stan Zaray. Stan has an incredible story. He's a fascinating character, um, and he's he's just such a great guy. It's really hard to to um, um, to get over the fact that all the good things that he's done in this community is just pretty amazing. And I actually wish I'm kicking myself for not getting Stan on the podcast earlier. I I really should have done it, but um, we're up against the wire on this one, so I don't think I can get him in such short notice. But um, Stan was kind of the main character, Yukon Man, and I talked about his book, Carry On, um, the story of, of basically Stan's life. He's from Boston, Massachusetts, and he moved out uh, in the wilderness of Alaska and made a life for himself. So Yukon Men was was really awesome show to watch, and because you follow people like Stan and Charlie Wright and, and several others that you know, really are, are living a lifestyle that a lot of us either live or wish that we could live. So I, I loved it, and the show got canceled. Yukon uh, Men is over. And since the show's been canceled, I've continued to follow along and keep up with Stan on his YouTube channel. Uh, Stan's A is the name of the channel. And he, he'll send, like, you know, he'll put up videos of him out with his dog team, uh, trapping in the Alaska wilderness, and a variety of salmon fishing and, and so on. A variety of different things. But, you know, really, it, it was it was awesome to have that show to be able to, to uh, keep up with uh, with that what, what went on up there. And when the show was canceled, it was kind of a bummer. So I heard about this project. It's called The Stand Project. And it's a guy named Ryan Walsh uh, and his wife Carrie that put this together. And what Ryan wants to do is put together a documentary series on Stan. Primarily on Stan, following him around and filming. And Ryan's not just some Yahoo that uh, had this idea out of nowhere. Ryan actually was one of the producers of the show Yukon Men for Discovery Channel. So he's pretty good. He knows what he's doing. Um, the Stan Project is a Kickstarter project, which means Kickstarter is a place where uh, people basically put projects up where you can fund them. Uh, it's it's called uh, crowdfunding. So people that are interested in uh, the product, interested in what's going on, can can support it. It's kind of like a grassroots effort to get something going from scratch. So instead of like going to a bank or going to an investor and saying, I want to make this TV show, um, he's basically going to Stan's fans and saying, I want to make this TV show. Are you guys interested enough to, to put some money up for it? So that's where the Stan Project uh, came came about. Stan Project, Ryan and Carrie are um, aiming at a goal of twenty thousand dollars. 
and $20,000 is basically they're in California and they're going to be flying up back and forth to Alaska to the bush in Tanana, Alaska to film Stan and they're going to have travel expenses they're going to have uh, some equipment and gear and, and lodging and stuff so they this is kind of like a bare bones money that they need to get this thing done they've actually already gone out and done some filming ahead of time and they want to continue with that so if they get this 20 grand this is an all or nothing project so uh, you go on Kickstarter if you can pledge to be a part of this project if it meets its goal then you get charged what you pledged and everybody pays and the project goes forward and the commitments that they had they're going to fulfill if you pledge a certain amount of money and the project does not meet its $20,000 goal it's over there's no money you you don't get charged a penny so that's kinda of how that Kickstarter thing works but for for the $20,000 um, this has been going on I think for about three weeks and they have twelve thousand four hundred sixty nine dollars donated pledged so far uh, from 181 backers and they have 11 days to go so as you listen to this we're about a week away um, <clears throat> this this is we're at crunch time this needs to get done I've pledged I'm probably gonna pledge a little more just to make this help make this uh, make this happen um, I'm gonna read you a little bit about the project just to give you some background there's actually a video that you can watch uh, about the project and uh, I'll link up to that in the show notes of this podcast so you can click on that and I'll link up to the the link to to actually get to this the Kickstarter site and donate so here's the story from Ryan Walsh I first met Stan in 2012 when I was hired as a producer shooter on the Discovery Channel show Yukon Men the show followed a handful of people living a subsistence lifestyle in Tanana a remote village in the interior of Alaska. It highlighted the challenges of living in a harsh and oftentimes unforgiving environment and exposed the daily struggles and dangers of being off the grid. The job itself was not always easy. It required long days and even longer nights, working in temperatures that reached negative 50 below and sometimes running into dangerous situations that made you rely on your survival skills. But through all this adversity, I learned so much. I discovered a more meaningful and thoughtful way to live life. I learned how to work with and trust the land, as well as others in the village. And most importantly, I learned to trust myself. The cast and crew of Yukon Men became good friends, but I got particularly close to one member named Stan Zaray. I became the go-to guy whenever we were filming Stan because we worked so well together. He became a mentor to me, and after my first season on the show, I knew that someday I wanted to document his life and make a project that focused solely on him. Why Stan? Well, let me tell you a little more about him. Stan grew up in the inner city of Boston in the 1960s. He came from a good home in a not-so-good neighborhood. He became somewhat of a troublemaker in his teens. He got involved with a gang, started stealing cars, and got into drugs. His closest friend, a bit older than Stan, started returning from Vietnam, and he witnessed his closest friends started returning from Vietnam, and he witnessed firsthand the destruction of war the war had caused. With so much fear, dread, and death around him, Stan knew there was a better life for him somewhere else, and he decided to find it. 
He bounced around the country for a bit, but then lost and then found his home in the interior of Alaska in a way that many might describe as dramatic. A bush plane dropped him and his soon-to-be wife off in the middle of nowhere, and they built a homestead with the personal items they had packed. The first few years of homesteading were extremely difficult. An accidental fire burned their food and almost all their gear in the first week. One day went out for a walk. Stan was attacked and pulled out of a tree by a grizzly bear. One winter, food was so scarce they were forced to eat their dog team to survive. But a lot of good came out of this experience as well. Stan started a family and learned to trap and hunt. He relished in the freedom of living off the land. He finally found the life he was looking for. Stan ended up staying at the homestead for 11 years until making his way to the big city of Tanana, Alaska, population 200. Now, 69 years old, Stan and his wife Kathleen live a subsistence lifestyle in their home in Tanana. Between them, they have four smart and ambitious kids. Stan has a dog sled team he uses to run his trap line. He processes his own meat and lives off the land. He volunteers with the village's fire department and is someone in town that people can rely on. Stan has become quite the scientist, studying the salmon run each season and collecting data. He started to realize that the state was overfishing without caring how that would impact the quantity of fish for future generations. Uh, they weren't thinking long term there was no data showing how much the commercial fishery was impacting the salmon population. In the summer, families travel to their fish camps to procure fish that will feed them for the year. It's a tradition that has been cherished for generations and has become a dying one due to the scarcity of fish. Stan decided to take it upon himself to collect his own data so that he and other people living subsistence lifestyle could better prepare for the years to come and maybe make a difference to future generations. For years, Stan has invited kids from the village to his fish camp every summer so they can get involved and study the data themselves firsthand. He hopes this experience will inspire kids to carry on the tradition with their families. And uh, there's a link there if you go on to Stan's site, rapidsresearch.com. Um, you can find more about that. <clears throat> with his tumultuous and rocky past, one could expect Stan to be a bitter and jaded person. However, the exact opposite is true. Stan is one of the most giving, patient, and optimistic people I've ever met. He's a light, light-hearted and funny, has the most loving and protective spirit. He's a survivor that appreciates the earth and lives each day to its fullest. He has always lived by his own moral code and refuses to give in even if it's at the detriment to himself. An example of this is the, his experience with the Vietnam draft. Unlike many who are trying to get out of the draft, Stan was honest during his physical exam. He said if he was sent overseas, he would not fight and offered to go to jail instead. The recruiters were so baffled by his transparency, they thought he was crazy and let him go. Although a somewhat funny story, this shows Stan's unbreakable integrity, which is one of the things I'd like to be to highlight in this project. The Team Ryan Walsh is the director and cinematographer for this documentary series. Ryan grew up in Michigan, spent as much time as he could in nature, and there found a love for the outdoors. After graduating from college, he moved to, West, to, to Los Angeles, California to pursue a career in television. He landed a job working on Discovery Channel's Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe, which allowed him to travel around the country and expose him to many different ways of life, where he learned to appreciate different ways different people live. 
He shot a handful of documentaries and has been lucky to work with renowned directors James Cameron and Eli Roth. His work has taken him all around the world, from top of Kilimanjaro to busy streets of Hong Kong to secluded Aboriginal land in Australia, the remote coast of Liberia. He worked a total of five years with Stan, going back and forth to Alaska, and hopes to continue to do so for as long as possible. Ryan believes that the best storytelling is through an honest interest in the subject matter at hand. That story is best told without preconceived ideas. He's a true believer that a project will find its way through the filming process. Carrie Pickering is the producer for this series. <clears throat> she grew up in San Jose, California, and moved to Los Angeles after high school. She's an actor and writer, as well as a co-creator of a web series that is in mid-production. Carrie's always been a city girl, but meeting Ryan opened her eyes to a new world of interests and hobbies. Together, they backpacked the Nepali coast, explored dozens of national and state parks, and traveled internationally to learn about other cultures and traditions. Carrie remembers visiting Ryan in Tanana when he first started working with Stan. It was like being on another planet, but being an adventurous person she is, Carrie embraced the experience. She even processed her own goose for dinner. Ryan's been talking about making this documentary project for years, and a few months ago, when it started to become a reality, Carrie asked if she could jump on board and help produce the project. Visiting Tanana and meeting Stan has also shaped her into a more thoughtful person, and she's extremely excited to help bring this project to life. The goal of this project is simply to show people a different way of life through the eyes of a man who has overcome so much to be able to live the life he wants to live. We rarely take the time to appreciate what we have, and this project will offer a way to look at life in a more meaningful and thoughtful purpose. We hope to inspire others and find the strength and perseverance within themselves to live their own best life. All right, so there's a little bit more there, but basically that's that's what it is. That's Stan, that's the project, that's Ryan and Carrie. They're going to be getting this done if they get funded. It's a big deal. It's really important to me. Uh, I want to see this. I, I, I want my kids to be able to see this, and, and I hope you do as well. So if you can back this project, I would appreciate it so much. Um, I'm going to put a link down there. You can also go to kickstarter.com and just search The Stan Project. It's pretty simple. Um, I'm going to offer something up to people who will back this project. Um, if you if you pledge um, any amount of money for this project um, and send me an email, jrodwood at gmail.com and let me know, I'm going to send you something in the mail. Um, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to get something from me in the mail of value, <laughs> trapping related. Um, but just... Uh, let me know that you pledged. I would really appreciate that. Um, I, it means a lot to me. I think it means it would mean a lot to you if if you like this stuff, this wholesome outdoors, trapping, subsistence lifestyle related stuff. Um, this is the stuff I want to watch. So if if these guys with twenty grand of funding can produce a documentary series that um, that we can enjoy for for decades to come, I think that's going to be pretty awesome. So there's a number of different ways that you can support. You can pledge like, you know, 10 bucks, 15, 20. There's all kinds of different options. If you pledge $20 or more, you actually get a digital copy of the series when it's completed. So uh, so that puts you in 
where you're gonna you're gonna be able to watch this. Um, you pledge a small amount. Uh, you're not you're probably gonna have to buy the series when it comes out, depending on you know what it, what format it's in. And if you pledge, the more you pledge, the more you know you pledge fifty bucks, you're gonna get a signed picture of uh, Stan with his dogs with his dog sled team. And the more you pledge as you go along, you, the more you get. So. Uh, just uh, this is a way to make this project happen. There's 11 days to go. By the time you listen to this, there may be a week or less to go. So let's get this done, guys. Come on. Okay, you guys ready to get into fur prices? A lot of you have been waiting to hear about fur prices. Um, well, you want the good news or the bad news? Coyotes and better bobcats are the good news. And I say, I don't say coyotes and bobcats, it's coyotes and better bobcats are the good news. Uh, the rest of the market is pretty much bad news. It's kind of right in line with what we've been expecting and talking about for a long time now. But the first fur auction, late February, early March for North American fur auctions is in the books. And let's just go over some of the averages. So coyotes are just absolutely hot. You know, let's talk about the good items first. Good news is, if you're selling coyotes, if you're in the West, um, you are you've hit the jackpot. Especially if you're in the you know West Northern Plains country of Montana, Wyoming, the Dakotas. Um, those he Western heavy coyotes did extremely well. So at this auction, those coyotes averaged $104. So this was pretty close, uh, almost identical to last year's auction at this same time. So considering the rest of the fur market has kind of gone downhill, this is pretty awesome news that, that the coyotes are, are, are in line with last year. Um, the Western semi-heavies, so those are coyotes that are kind of from that same area, but they weren't they weren't as prime the fur wasn't as thick those average about sixty dollars which you know again pretty good now here's here's where the difference is um, in the past even when the western heavy coyotes have done really well the eastern coyotes have dropped like a rock and they've averaged you know they they typically average like twenty five thirty dollars for northeastern coyotes that I'm used to catching and in the you know they've come up to like last year they're up to about forty dollars. This year, the heavy eastern coyotes. So basically, you know, like I'm in Maine, so a coyote that you catch in Maine that has actually heavy prime fur, those average fifty four dollars. Again, those long term those have averaged twenty five. Last year, I believe they averaged forty. So they they were up to fifty four dollars in this auction. And what happened here, uh, I listened to most of the coyote auction. I was actually traveling for work, and I had my phone with the auction going on my phone. And what what appeared to have happened was when all the Western heavy coyotes sold, there, there was still a lot of demand for coyotes, and there wasn't a lot there that was available. So buyers started getting a little bit less picky and started bidding up the prices for the rest of the coyotes. And the, there was a lot of demand here. There's a bunch of buyers that were looking for furs and 
every single item was sold. The eastern coyotes, typically they vary a lot in color. So there's not a uniform or consistent color. They're just all over the map. And they have a very coarse hair. It's like kind of like a like a German Shepherd. It's really coarse. Uh, when we had Garrett Volk on the podcast, he talked about those western coyotes. And he talked about how soft the hair is. How, how soft the fur is. These eastern coyotes are not soft. They're coarse. But as long as the pelt was prime... The buyers were not picky about color or coarseness. So they were bidding these these guys up. And I think it was just basically, you know, what can we put on a as trim on a hood of 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 a coat that is gonna work because we cannot find more of these heavy western coyotes. So fifty-four dollars. Uh, of course the section three coyotes that's like either damaged or southern, they actually average seventeen dollars, which is you know, not too bad considering. Let's talk about raccoon moving on from coyotes. So coons have been up and down. The thing with coons though is that, you know, they're a very common item, but they vary so much in size, color, quality, and so on. And I I feel that our expectations for coon have been so low that the fact that we can sell any has kind of been uh and, and uh, encouraging bit of news. So the coons average somewhere between $7 and $17, depending on the, the section and the size. You're know, you still, your lower quality coons are probably still not going to sell for anything. Um, but but that was pretty good. I, I felt like that was uh, either in line with last year or a slight improvement. Muskrats, muskrats were up about 10, 11% from last year's sale. Uh, most of them sold, and they averaged three dollars and fifty-nine cents. If you had like muskrats from some northern areas with really large, thick pelts, they you know you're you're probably talking four fifty to five dollars average on those rats. So so rats, there's some demand for rats. They're not doing that bad. Okay, that was the good news. Um, we'll talk about bobcat real quick. I don't have any uh, final averages from NAFA yet. Because the cat sale literally ended about 20 minutes ago. But cats, as far as I could tell listening to the sale, the top end, the high quality bobcats from the western states, the same places those high quality coyotes come from, with the clear spotted bellies, you know, we're talking somewhere in the three dollars to $500 range for most of those pelts. They did very well. However, as soon as you knocked off of that top tier, the the pelts went down significantly in value. And toward the end, we're looking at twenty to thirty dollar bobcats for you know southern cats and other places. So so that was kind of the deal with those. They the top end did well, but they dropped off fast. Let's go into beaver. Bummer. Beaver are bummer. So just when you thought beaver prices could not go any lower beaver prices went lower it's it's really disappointing especially for a guy like me I'm, I'm sitting I'm looking to the right of me here and I got five or six beaver pelts on stretchers on boards and it's gonna be hard to sell them so 
Beaver didn't do well. Um, some of the better beaver, like we have some pretty good beaver here. Some of them went for, you know, 20 to $30. But overall average, eastern beaver, which I trap, the overall average was $11. And that in the past, you know, the past like year that it was like 13 um, I thought thir 12 or 13 was about as low as it could go. It went down to 11 the Western beaver were $10. Section 3, Southern or Unprime beaver were nine, a little under $9. So there's really, again, this is a hatter market. Uh, the hatter pelts are, you know, basically you don't, you don't need a Northern fully prime beaver to be a hatter. And so they're just kind of buying in volume and there's no difference between southern and northern beaver anymore at, at least not in this market uh it's it's a tough place there's no there's no coat market for beaver sheared beaver pelts uh for garments are just they're just not selling so that's where we're at the good news of course is beaver caster and we always make that joke like the caster is going to be worth more than the pelt i think we're there i think we've arrived um so caster was up around seventy dollars for number one dried, and I've been hearing eighty to ninety dollars, and even a little bit more, for number one dried caster. It depending on how you do your math and what kind of beaver you have and what time of year it is and everything, you're probably looking at between six and ten beavers to make a pound of caster. So if you're very conservative and there's some smaller beavers and some beavers that are don't have much of a full caster and say it's 10, that's 8 or $9 per beaver just in caster. If you're talking bigger beaver with some fuller casters, you know, you could be talking about $16, $18 per beaver, just the caster. And then of course, uh, 10 or 11 for the pelt. So it's pretty crazy. I, I just it's just it's just incredible how this market has stayed so low for so long. We'll keep an eye on it. Hopefully, this is the bottom. Uh, mink, wild mink sold for nine dollars on average, but only the that was only the better ones that sold. So if they'd sold everything, that'd probably be quite a bit lower average. I spent all day listening to ranch mink auction off at Nafa today. I uh, had that going on my phone in the background while I was doing work and it was it was complete self-punishment. It was brutal. I felt so bad for the auctioneers trying to sell those pelts uh, with minimum prices and nobody wanted to meet the minimums and back and forth and you could tell how frustrated the auctioneers were and the buyers were looking for bargains. There's just there's just no demand. It's almost like it wasn't an auction. I actually went on Wikipedia to look up the uh, definition of auction, what an auction actually is. And I also looked up the definition of a fire sale because that was kind of the end of the mink auction, kind of sounded like a fire sale to me. But this this was sad. This wasn't really much of an auction. It was a, do you want it at the minimum price? Okay, sold. Do you want it at the minimum price? No? Okay, moving on. So it was a bummer. I actually took notes. Let's see. I took notes on the most common terms or phrases the auctioneers talk, uh, mentioned. I cannot drop. No, I cannot drop the price. No drops. I wish I could, but I can't. 
that is the price. These are minimums. It goes on. It goes on. It goes on to the next next lot. It goes on. So that was it. That was a that was the auction. It's it's kind of tough right now. Links. I feel bad for you guys up in Alaska and Canada. This is uh, pretty poor prices. Uh, my friend Jim in Interior Alaska trapping for links right now. Sorry, Jim. Um, I was hoping for a better price for you. Looks like the NAFA auction. 80% of the links sold for an average of $62. So that's been 70 for quite a while. Before 70, we had a pretty good level where links were going for 200 bucks. And you know, right now the links are at a high in their cycle most most places. So guys could pick up. They're picking up pretty big numbers of them, and it's just a shame that they're not they're not worth a couple hundred bucks a piece. Red fox, gray fox, otter pretty much didn't sell at all. There just wasn't any demand, and uh, they they moved them on. Martin and Fisher dipped. So, Heavy Martin, uh, last year, Heavy Martin at this auction went for $88 average. So, these are the Martin, the heavy and heavy and pretty much like the, the XL and bigger. These are the Canadian and Alaskan Martin. Last year, they averaged $88. This year, the same animals, same auction, averaged 61 the semis, which are more, you know, a lot of the early caught martin here in Maine are semi-heavies. Um, they're semi-heavy early caught in Alaska and Canada, but those are typically bigger animals. So overall, semi-heavies, just all sizes, they average $31. That means our main martin probably, our semi-main martin are probably in the tw low 20s. Um, so that's pretty disappointing again that that... That was $58 last year and 31 at this auction. So I'm glad I didn't send all my Martin there. Fisher, Fisher were down a little bit. They were down about $5 from last year. They averaged $41.54 overall. And there were a lot of Martin and Fisher that didn't sell. So that's basically it for fur prices. Um, again, it's low. I'm sorry to to talk about how low it is it's it's disappointing but it's just a case where you know you got to look at alternatives different places sell your fur different options other than the fur buyer or the auction market or you know if you have to sell it you have to sell it you got to take the low price and think about whether you want to target those animals uh, next year for the same prices so that's that um, I also want to mention my book fur profit a trapper's guide to the modern fur market you can find that on Amazon. You can find it on my website. Find it from Cots Bros, uh, PCS Outdoors, F&T Fur Harvesters Trading Post, a bunch of different places. But maybe maybe Fur Profit will give you a couple of ideas on alternatives for trying to sell your fur in a market like this, where you know the auction just is not the best, maybe the best option right now. I mean, if you got to sell it, the auction's a good place to go. But if you really want to hold on to the prices that we had last year, you're going to have to get creative. So anyway, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I appreciate you. And uh, keep on thinking, trapping, talking, trapping. Um, get out there and set some traps if it's still trapping season. And I appreciate you listening in. And we'll catch you on the next episode.